As always, we want to thank our sponsor, the Norden Group of Salt Lake City. Why do portfolios of large institutions, endowments, and pensions look so different than the portfolios of high net worth individuals and families? The philosophy at the Norden Group is that you should invest your portfolio like an institution. This approach leads to complete transparency. Some key questions to ask yourself. What do I really own? How much am I paying in fees? What costs am I paying that are not disclosed? Would I be better off in a low-cost index fund? At the Norden Group, we conduct what is called a portfolio audit, which can help reveal these and other important details. Call us to set up your appointment. Investment advisor services offered through Townsquare Capital LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Townsquare is not affiliated with any other named entity. Quick note before we begin, you guys are going to have to indulge my self-conscious side. Um, the equipment that we use to record isn't great. It's kind of beginner level stuff. Um, our podcast is pretty beginner level, so I, I think it's fine. But um, over the past few weeks, one of our microphones has become uh, significantly quieter than the other. Um, I'm working and finding a way to edit uh, our way like around this problem. But um, you guys might notice in this week's episode, Tessa sounds a, a bit louder than I do. Uh, we had her talk as quiet as she could. I tried to talk as loud as I could, but um, I apologize if it's a little annoying. I have to adjust the volume uh, back and forth a little bit. We are going to try and find a way to edit our way around this problem. Ideally, we'd like to get some new hardware. We're trying to figure out a way to swing that. So um, in the meantime, thank you all so much for listening. I, I have every confidence that you will forgive our amateurish uh, skills uh, in this department. And um, uh, yeah, appreciate you folks as always. Well, it's um, new ground we're going to be breaking today because Dan is in Missoula. And so I was tasked with doing a solo podcast, but that didn't sound like a lot of fun. So I brought my disproportionately cool fiance with me today. Tessa's back. Uh, everybody everybody loved Tessa the first time around. So I'm, I'm assuming that folks aren't going to have a problem with a little more Tessa content. Woohoo, I'm here. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. Dan isn't going to be able to get uh, home tonight until 10 or 11, it sounds like. So... Uh, we're going to continue without him. Uh, Dan will be missed, but uh, I think we'll do okay. Um, we have a really news-heavy week. Uh, the uh, The World Cup in Lenzerheide finished up today. We had some local results with neighbored riders I want to go over. Um, I thought about doing a really well-researched full topic, but because about half of this is going to be dedicated to news and current events and stuff, I put out a thing on Instagram this morning. Uh, from Maybird looking for questions for Q&A. I think we have five that we'll run over. Okay. And as a special treat, Tessa has prepared a quiz uh, for yeah. me. So the tables will be turned a little bit. <laughs> um, but to start right out of the gates, I want to talk about the coolest mountain bike racer ever. Is it you? It is not me. I'm I'm in the top 10, wow. I think, but I maybe top five, but I'm, I'm not the coolest. Um, we don't usually talk about downhill racing. Really quick, Tessa, you are familiar with downhill racing. Yeah, um, for slightly. those for, for people who aren't familiar, how would you describe downhill racing? You go downhill? <laughs> yes, well, quite apt. Uh, yeah, downhill racing, for those of you who are not familiar, is uh, you take a chairlift to the top of a hill and you get one run that or, is timed. Yeah. Is that the one that also where you can like, you go uh, uphill, but you're not timed for that part? Or is that enduro That's racing? enduro you're thinking oh, okay. of. Enduro is basically five or six downhill races all tied into one where you have to climb in between. Downhill racing is a one and done. You get one run. 
Um, they're it. usually less than five minutes long. Really, really crazy stuff. I'll show, I'll show you some videos later. Um, we don't usually talk about downhill because it's not uh, what we do on the team. Um, but the coolest story of the World Cup in Switzerland this weekend came from downhill. Um, mm. I've done, and I think you've even seen my introduction to cycling presentation that I've done mm -hmm. two or three times at the beginning of every season where I go, like, this is what enduro racing is. This is what road racing is. Here are some names to know. Yeah. Right? It was actually really fun. He, I'm a teacher, and he came to my classroom this year and, like, did, like, a little bike presentation for my students, and it was so fun. He did, like, an overview of all of them, so. Oh, I, that's right. So, yeah. funny enough, the rider that I showed in the clip for the downhill, I believe, is the one we're going to talk oh. about today. Um there are a few names I think you should know if you're interested in cycling, and one of them is Rachel Atherton. Have you heard me talk about that name I before? I think so, yeah. Rachel Atherton is a, uh, a British woman who I think is not just the best downhill mountain biker, mountain biker ever, not the best female mountain biker ever. I think she's the best mountain biker ever. Wow. By the numbers, I... I, I don't I think you'd have a hard time arguing statistically that anybody is a better mountain biker ever than hmm. Rachel Atherton. Um, she here let me give you some of her stats here. Um, between 2015 and 2017, she won 14 World Cups. Wow. In a row. Oh my. In a row. So at the beginning wow. of the first race of the 2015 season, she was second. From that point on until the second race of the 2017 season, so basically for two full seasons, she won every single World Cup. Wow. And if that doesn't mean a lot to you, winning one World Cup makes your career. Yeah. It is an insanely big deal. She's won in total. Um, She's like the Taylor Swift of the cycling world. She is like the Taylor <laughs> Swift of the cycling world, Tessa. <laughs> She's, she's won 40 World Cups in total, wow. five world championships. So she's been the rainbow jersey five different times and six overall World Cups. Um, that's a record better than Nino Scherter. It's better wow. than Aaron Gwynn. It's better than Greg Menard. There's no way. Which is crazy because I feel like women aren't like talked enough about like in cycling no. because like they've recently just become more like in the cycling world, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, like I don't like, know if I've heard her name as much as like Nino Scherter or any of the other ones. Really, truly. And, and it's like, I think to mountain biking's credit, there has pretty much always been a women's mountain mm -hmm. bike world cup, but it's just, people don't talk about it as much. And, and I'll tell you like the racing we're going to talk about today, the women's racing was better this weekend. Wow. Hands down. Um, but, but with Rachel Atherton in particular, this, this is interesting. And, and so in 2019, she's been active in elite world cup since like 2010, hmm. been around for a long time. And in 2019, she developed an Achilles injury. Oh. And, and I think as someone who has that yourself, it's pretty, it sucks. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's pretty debilitating. Like, yeah. especially if you're trying to be an elite athlete. So that kind of slowed her down. And then in 2021, she had her first kid, um, wow. gave birth to her first child. And at that point, I was like, okay, I think the competitive age of Rachel Atherton is probably over. Um, I think peak age in mountain biking these days is probably 30. Mm -hmm. Once you get to that point, it's really hard to keep up with the level of competition with the young riders coming up, um, giving birth, you know, that's hard Having on your body. Kid. Like being a top end downhill racing athlete, being able to take that kind of beating, I was like, I don't think that we're going to see more Rachel Atherton winning as a... As, as, a, as a competitive rider, she started her own bike company with her mm. two brothers, um, the other famous Athertons. Um, I kind of thought we were seeing that chapter. And then I heard that she was going to come back and try another World Cup, which isn't unheard of. Um, people do this, you know, they'll kind of retire, they'll come back, they'll do a World Cup or two. And I was like, you know, it'd be really cool to see Rachel Atherton come back after having a kid and complete a World Cup, just getting down a World Cup track. Mm -hmm. Crazy, right? Um, Rachel Atherton won. Wow. <laughs> she came back and won and took her 40th World Cup oh. win today. 
which is absolutely incredible. And then the Guardian reported that she finished that, got off the podium, went back to the pit zone, and was breastfeeding her kid. Like, wow, what a hero! Unbelievably cool stuff. Um, so I, I don't know if we should expect more of that because again, mm-hmm. it's hard, you know, to compete with, you know, like like the guy who won the men's elite race today was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to compete, but. Um, Bravo to Rachel. Yeah, that's impressive. Like we're in the presence of greatness right now. It's really cool to be, (laughs) um, you know, in that area to see somebody and just to be able to like, like I said, to ride a World Cup track, let alone to win an elite World Cup after being out of competition for, you know, two seasons is incredible. Um, So yeah, props to Rachel Atherton. I do also want to say really quick, um, that 18-year-old we mentioned, mentioned Jordan Williams from the UK winning the elite men's uh, race ahead of Verger and Bruni. Crazy, crazy stuff. It usually takes three, four seasons of racing the elite level to get on the podium. To break in, basically, like your first World Cup and just win is wow. is huge. Good for him. Um, men's race. Uh, Nino Schurter, uh, vintage Nino Schurter today. Um, Back before I met you, when I was a hopeless nerd in my basement watching mountain bike races every single was? night until two in the morning. <laughs> Get your little jabs in there, Tessa. You think you're so funny. Um, Nino Schurter, you know, back in 2015, 16, 17, would just ride away from the field, right? Like no one could compete. Um, and then the past few years, he's been human. You know, he's been on mm. the podium, winning here and there. Still probably the best rider overall, but like not riding away from people. Anyway, he rode away today. Mm. Home World Cup. No one even came close. It wasn't an exciting race because it was just Nino right. absolutely dominating everybody. Uh, just slammed the door on everybody else. Took his 34th World Cup win, which is historic because he is now the winningest um, uh, cross-country rider ever. Wow. Ta- he was tied with Julian Absalon for, for a minute, um, but he's, he's broken out. Winningest um, uh, uh, cross-country rider ever. Um, the other result I want to talk about from the men's is in the under 23, Braden Johnson took fourth place. Wow. You remember Braden Johnson. I think you might've met him a time or two. He used, he, the Johnson family lived here for a minute and then moved to Colorado a few years ago. But if not, you've heard me talk about him. Like a guy I used to go and ride with. Oh Um, my gosh. Nicest guy ever. He's been working his butt off for the past two or three years with the, uh, the bear, uh, bear Devo team. I think he was racing for USA cycling in Lenzohide, but taking fourth place with some absolute hitters like you know guys who are really big deal european teams and stuff like that fourth place huge shout out to Braden. Wow, i know he listens to exciting. this occasionally so maybe maybe you'll hear us shout out <laughs> today but um i want to talk a little bit about the women's cross-country race because it was really interesting uh we had loana lecompte uh take the win um ahead of ann terpster and alessandra keller and it was interesting because we were seeing this battle shape up between lecompte and Prevost. Pauline Ferrand Prevost, for those of you who don't know, is, I would say, on average, the best female cross-country racer of the past decade. Mm-hmm. She's the rider where, at one point, she was simultaneously the road, mountain bike, and cyclocross world champion. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? What a low life. Um, <laughs> it was interesting, because uh, Loana Lecomte is probably the smallest rider in the World Cup circuit. She's very light, very much a mm-hmm. climber. Um, Prevost's uh, small and, and, and light, too, but it was, it was this interesting kind of battle where you had Lecomte and Prevost going back and forth at each other, leading the race. And at a certain point, the climbs were too steep, too long, and I think too hot. I think Prevost struggling with the heat oh. too. And you saw Prevost crack. I could see the moment where she cracked, where the cadence changed, where her shoulders start to slump. Lecomte looks back and sees this, drops a gear and goes harder, right? Oh, wow. And at that moment, the interesting thing, go back and watch it, Luana Lecomte is smiling because she knows she just won the World Cup. Two laps from the end, she knows she's won. Wow. Because her only competitor... Provo has cracked, right? Yep. And it was so interesting because I doubt anything changed 
physiologically with those two at that point. Um, but just that mental boost of knowing I just cracked my biggest opponent. I'm going to, you know, put in the attack while they're mentally weak. I'm going to go win. And then Provo realizing, shoot, I just lost the race. Like Provo dropped two places, finished oh. fourth. So, you know, go back and watch it. Remember when you're racing that mountain biking is primarily a physical, you know, uh, uh, sport, yeah. but there's a lot of mental. Oh my gosh. Cause you've, have you, have you, have you ever it. had those rides where you just get in your own head and you're just like hating it? All you kind of start to spiral. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of those. <laughs> have a lot of those. Right. And racing too, like when things are going right and then things stop going mm-hmm. well and you just fall apart. Right. Yep. So something to think about, go back and watch that. <laughs> um, closer to home, huge shout out Gabe Norda taking second wow. in the Wasatch back 50 in the elite uh, mm. behind Truman Glasgow, I believe. Wow. Super impressive. This guy's first season back, just returned from an LDS mission uh, a few months ago. Wow. And he's already back to the top end of elite competition. So Good for him. Um, I'll never get over how cool it is to see Gabe in a Maber jersey. <laughs> never get over that. Um, lots of good stories from Missoula as well. Uh, Dan and I are going to go over those next week. Dan said it's been an awesome weekend. When he comes back, we'll talk about all the results there and stuff. The last bit of news I wanted to talk about is um, the Netflix uh, Tour de France Ride to Survive Unchained, whatever it's called. No, Ride to Survive was the F1. I think it's called Tour de France Unchanged. Unchained. Um, Unchained, that's right. Unchained. Um, Which is funny because the French... pun. What was the actual French translation? The French translation was... uh, The Heart of the Peloton. Au Cœur du Peloton, which means the Heart of the Peloton. I'm I'm marrying someone bilingual, so that makes me (laughs) smart by extension. No, I'm not bilingual, but I do do speak a little French, so... It was kind of fun to watch that. (laughs) It was kind of fun to watch that and, like, get some practice because we're going to Paris soon, so we have to gotta learn we're going to paris yeah oh shoot when our honeymoon oh, there's a there's a midweek that week i don't know if i can make it um, but yeah it was interesting what I did mean, you think so really quick i i should explain um there have been plenty of documentaries about the tour de france but they're usually coming from the cycling world they're people in the cycling world making a documentary about cycling for cycling people um i think it was a year ago netflix released their formula one documentary that hmm. got a ton of people into formula one my understanding is it's the same people doing this Netflix one. So this is not a documentary by cycling people for cycling people. It's a documentary by Netflix for the general public because, you know, they thought it was an interesting story. And and for you, who you're very little into road racing. You know, Tessa, Tessa's not into the road racing side at all. What were your thoughts as somebody who had maybe some kind of beginner knowledge about road cycling but wasn't big into it? What did you think? Yeah, um, it was definitely interesting because... I feel like, you know, I've seen it on the TV, I've seen races before, and it's like, oh, well, that's cool, but it's just like, they're just, you know, they're just biking on a road for forever. Right. So, going into it, I was like, I don't really know, you know, kind of how it works, but it was kind of cool to see, like, how the teams work, and that, you know, a lot of the times they have different goals, I think that's what surprised me, is like, you know, I can't remember which team it was, but one of the teams was like, yeah, our goal is just to win as many stages as we can. So, uh, 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 quick Step Alpha Vinyl. Yes, that Was one. that team, and you were confused, you're like, I thought everybody here was here yeah, to win the tour, win. and I'm like, yeah. they do not care, they're not going to win the yellow jersey, they don't have a rider who's capable of it, they're here to win stages, yeah. and like, that was like, you'd like never that surprised that, me. Right? Yeah, and I think too, just like realizing like, how much goes into it and like the strategy behind it and that they're you know you have the i don't know if they're team what are they captains or leaders or mm-hmm. you know, you've got like the director sportif who's sitting yeah. in the car directing them how to do it, and then the, like the road captain out on the road the domestiques bringing yep. water bottles and stuff like 
Um, it's thought, really good. Yeah. I just didn't realize like, you know, not everyone there is trying to win the race. Like a lot of time it's just the strategy, like the domestiques are there to like, you know, give water bottles and give their bikes to their teammates. Right, right, right. So right. that was interesting. Yeah. It, it's pretty good. It is eight parts. It's eight. It's an eight part series. Each episode is just like 45 minutes long. So it's, it's yeah. a lot of content. I'm still not through it. I was busy with work this week. Um, go watch. I thought it was pretty good. I have some yeah. criticisms. I think there's some things they could have done better, but like, and it, it's, and it's, it's entertaining, you know, it's like, yeah. it's well filmed and everything. I think you said it well, like it's, I think it's a little like too much for me to understand as like a beginner cyclist, but like you were saying, like it's kind of on like a, an easier level for someone who's like more advanced. My criticism was if you're really into the tour, you're going to disagree with the way they frame a lot of things. They're like Tom Pidcock's this beginner and he's going to try to prove himself. I'm like, Tom Pidcock is already an, like an incredibly Hmm. successful road cyclist. He is, you know, I mean, he's this guy. I was, was it uh Dwarsdorf Lander or something? He won ahead of Wout van Aert a couple years ago. Hmm. Like he's not, you know, so there, there are some things where I'm like, I don't, I don't like how they framed that or they were just trying to make an interesting story out of nothing. Um, for the most part, it's really good. I will say mm. if you're super into road cycling, you might have some quibbles with it, but you'll love oh. it. If you're a total novice, there's some you stuff you're going to have to Google to understand. Or it will go over your head. Like a, lo- it did a lot for of it will go over your head, but it's, I think it's good. Yeah. It's entertaining. It's how much is a Netflix subscription these days? I think it's $15, 15 now. They just raised it. I would have paid 15 bucks just to watch this. I think it's, it's really mm. cool. It's a lot of content. Your test is like, are you crazy? <laughs> how much would you have paid to watch this? I don't know, like $2. <laughs> There you go. Um, uh, yeah, really good. I, I'd go and watch it, though. Um, that is the news that we have uh, for this week. Like I said, we'll recap Missoula on the uh, next episode. But now I am going to put myself in the hot seat because Tessa is going to give me a quiz. It, are you comfortable with me sharing how we derived this quiz? <laughs> sure. So uh, we this is a chat GPT generated quiz. So this will be yeah. kind of an interesting... I am kind of interested to see if it's like actually these like, are good questions. yeah okay okay so the first question is which race is considered the most prestigious and challenging professional cycling event your options are a tour de france b jo d'italia c the vuelta d perube okay this is very interesting i i like this question because it sucks um <laughs> the correct answer it's looking for is the tour de france mm-hmm. but is that is that correct yep, that's so, correct the Tour de France is absolutely the most prestigious race in cycling. It is not the most challenging. There are really? plenty of years where the Giro and the Vuelta are more physically demanding, where they have more climbs that are more difficult. Um, the Tour, I think you could argue, is the most difficult because you get the highest level of competition. Every single mm-hmm. team is sending their A team, right? And it's, so how many days is the Tour de France? 21. 21 it days. It's a three-week-long event with two rest days, and that format holds true for the Vuelta and oh. the Giro as well. Okay. Um yeah, it, it's it's interesting because they're all very comparable in that way. But like the Vuelta, not every team has the money to send an A team to the Vuelta. Right. It's just it. But the course can be harder than the tour. I think you could. There have been several years recently where I, I, I would argue that the, the course of the tour is the least challenging of the three Grand Tours. Huh. The third race that they threw, or the fourth race that they threw in their Paris Roubaix is a one day uh, classic. It's, it's one of the oh. monuments. It's one of the five monuments of cycling. The Perry Roubaix, I think, is probably harder than any individual day of the tour. Hmm. Um, there, there might be like, like the stage this year with or last year in the tour that had the Col de Grenon and the Telegraph or whatever and the Galivier. Like that c- could maybe be harder for some riders, for a really heavy rider. But 
Paris-Roubaix, I think, is the most challenging one-day event in in cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That was way too much explanation for one <laughs> question. Huh? So, yeah. I, That's okay. Interesting question, though, because I think you could... It is you interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this next one is, I think, just very, like, basic. Um, okay. So, second question. Who holds the record for the most Tour de France victories? Eddie Merckx, okay. Lance Armstrong... Miguel Indurain. Miguel Indurain. Chris Froome. Chris Froome. So, uh, hmm. Yep. It is, the correct answer is Chris Froome. Um, is it saying Lance Armstrong? Mm-hmm. Lance but Armstrong's wins do not count anymore. Yep. It He's, says his titles were stripped. Okay. Yeah. Lance Armstrong won the tour seven times, Yeah, I believe. Um, his titles are no longer recognized. The official answer to that question is Chris Froome. Huh. Uh, Eddie Merckx and Miguel Indurain, two of the biggest legends in cycling, um, uh, neither of them have won the tour as many times as Chris Froome. So Chris Froome is the correct answer. A lot of people think that we should still count Lance Armstrong. Because, uh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> well, the, the counter argument is everyone he was competing against was doping just as much as he was. So huh. you could look at it and say like, really, truly, Lance Armstrong was still the best. Um, but um, I think it's it's kind of morally obvious that like we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't count those. So yeah, Chris Froome is the winningest rider. Pogacar is going to beat him. Okay. Pogacar has won the tour twice already. Chris Froome has won the tour four times, correct? Is it four How or would five? I, I don't know. <laughs> Does it not say in the answer? Oh, no. Okay. It, no. It's four or five. I, I, Pogacar is going to beat him, I, I think. Um, oh, this is interesting, though. It says the knowledge cutoff for ChatGPT is September 2021. Yeah, I've read that before. Okay. So, yeah, po- so it only goes up to changed. that date. Right. It hasn't changed because Pogacar has only won twice only uh, okay my age <laughs> do you want the next question yeah sure sure give me, give me the next i one. know this one okay in professional road cycling what does the term peloton refer to tessa what does the term peloton refer to it's the group of riders that are leading the race no <gasps> what in- okay never mind i don't i don't know that then the, the peloton is is the main body of riders in the race so um, isn't that why the said? group of riders leading the race um could be the peloton but it could oh. also be a breakaway okay so you could have 30 guys in the front of the race we would call them a breakaway the the main body of riders is the peloton hmm. so do you want just, any more questions does I, it have more i generated more if you sure, want throw them out here. I'm, I'm interested throw them out here which country has produced the most tour de france winners Oh. You want your options? The, I think it's France, but give me your options. Belgium. Okay. Spain. Okay. Italy. France. The most winners. So. And you get bonus points if you can tell me how many. Okay. This is interesting. Belgium, you're going to have, you're going to have Mercs. Um, I don't know if there's been a, has there been a recent Belgian winner of the tour? How far back do we have to go to get a Belgian I winner? I don't know. Um, don't, don't give me this. Hang on. Because Italy, you've got Vincenzo Nibali won in 2014. But before that, what Spain. Because you had Spain would be Indrain, got mm-hmm. Contador. Um, I'm going to say, because the tour has been going on for, what, 110 years mm-hmm. now? And I, I can only think of the last 20. I'm going to say France, because in the early years, I think it was mostly French riders riding the tour. That is correct. It's France, yes. Yep. Okay. Sweet. How many victories? Do you want to do a guess? Ooh, how many individual winners? I'm going to say 15. 36. 36? <laughs> it's a lot. Oh, my gosh. And that, that that's actually really interesting because the tour has been going on for... And I think I've looked at the list of winners before on Wikipedia. And for, in the early years, it's just all French guys. The tour, I don't think, became like a super international event for decades. So... 
Um, I would be interested to know who has won the most tours in the past 30 years, though, because that would not be France. I don't think we've had a French mm. winner of the tour since the 80s. Wow. In fact, yeah, I think that's a real mm. stat. I can look that up. I can maybe verify that later, but that's a good one. Are there any more questions? Yeah, do you want them? Sure. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. Which professional cyclist holds the, the record for the most victories in the UCI World Road World Championships. Oh, okay. Who who are the options here? I Eddie Merckx. Okay. Mark Cavendish. Okay. Peter Sagan. Okay. Mario. Capet. <laughs> Mark Cipollini. Yes. Okay. That one. No. So uh, Cavendish has only been world champion once. Okay. Sagan has been world champion three times. That's notable because it was three consecutive world mm. championships that he won. And keep in mind, this is up until September of twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. So that yeah, it, it's going to be um, it's going to be Eddie Merckx who won. Is it not Eddie Merckx? It says Peter Sagan. How many times? Did Three Eddie victories. Mer- how many? How, hang on. I'm, I'm pausing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google this. Hang on. So uh, back after a quick Google break here. Um, ChatGPT is wrong, um, but I was also wrong. Eddie Merckx has also on, only won three, which is in- interesting because he, I mean, his stats like uh, he won 11 grand tours. He won all five monuments, set the hour record, but only, I say only set or won the world championships three times. I thought it was more. So I was wrong. I thought he'd won five or six. Um, but yeah, ChatGPT, how many does ChatGPT says Merck's won? Does it it say? doesn't say. It just says Peter Sagan has three victories. Okay, interesting. I guess you can't always trust ChatGPT. So <laughs> maybe this whole quiz means nothing. But is it, you said there was one more? Yeah. Give me the last uh, one. Do you want, well, there's two, but I'll let you pick. Do you want one about a grand tour or one about like a cycling definition? Give me both. Both? Rapid okay. Fire. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. What is the purpose of a domestique in professional cycling? Tessa, how about you answer this one? Because you should be able to after the documentary. Yeah. They support the team leader by offering like their bike, supplies, water, that kind of stuff. Drafting is the, is the biggest drafting. one. Oh, okay. Draft. okay. Drafting. What's, give, me, give me the next one. Last one is which Grand Tour consists of a route that passes through France, Spain, and Andorra? And Andorra, France, Spain, and Andorra. Do you want me to the, list them? It's, or? it's the well. It could it could be the tour. I don't know if the tour has ever done that all in one. The, the answer to that is probably the Vuelta. That is correct. Okay. Okay. And people should know, and this is interesting too, that Grand Tours do not always start like the Tour de France does not always start in France. Yeah. Didn't it start in Copenhagen? It started in Copenhagen last year. Last year. This yeah. year, it's going to start in. Um, uh, where is it? The Basque Country in Spain. Oh, so yeah, that's they start and like the Giro started in Jerusalem a few years ago. Like it's it's really weird. They'll start and Does, they'll, they'll leave the country too. So like it'll be in France, but then they'll dip into Spain or something, you know, or dip. Yeah, so interesting stuff. Hmm. What were you gonna say? Oh, I was just going to say to the Does the Tour de France always end at the Arc de Triomphe? Like the in the past century i think okay like um, that's so interesting not century but at least few few decades yeah it, it do they just do that on, for tradition yeah i think so it, it for it, since the 80s i think it's mostly ended with a um a sprint on the champs Elysees, which is the most prestigious sprint to win in cycling um but sometimes it'll end with a time trial in nice i think was maybe back in the 80s it did it did one time um so yeah there's a lot of like traditions with the tour where it usually does something or they usually do a particular climb but every every once in a while it'll be left out but yeah generally does finish with a sprint on the champs Elysees. Hmm. so um moving forward now because that was a, that, that was an interesting quiz i give chat gpt like three stars out of five for that yeah that was it pretty did... it was a lot of basic questions that i know yeah not like super well and then and then just like 
inaccurate information oh, yeah. too. So maybe don't always trust AI. Um, but we have uh, some questions that people submitted that we want to run over now. So we'll do a Q&A. Um, I don't think we'll share, I guess we, we eh, I don't think we'll share who submitted these just to be safe. I didn't get explicit permission from them. Um, let's start, uh, let's start with this one here. We'll have Tessa read these off for me. All right. Just that first one. Yeah. Start there. What advantages could racing on a mullet wheel setup have as opposed to both 29 or both 27.5? Okay. So this is interesting. So the mullet is a recent bike industry I'm using heavy air quotes here, innovation, um, where where forever we had, all mountain bikes had 26 inch wheels. Right. And then somebody said, hey, uh, there's some advantages with the bigger wheels, they're more efficient, they roll over stuff better, they're basically smoother on rough stuff. Let's all have 29 inch wheels. And then nobody knew how to design geometry for bikes with 29 inch wheels. So 29ers sucked. So everyone was like, hey, the problem isn't the geometry, it's the wheels. Let's shrink them, but not all the way. So they shrunk them down to 27.5. And then we had this really confusing era where there were three common sizes of bike tires and wheels wow. and everything being sold, 26, 27.5, and 29. 26 died. Then we just had 27.5 and 29, which is the way it was when I got into the sport. Mm -hmm. And then in the past five or six years, 27.5 has mostly died. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I haven't seen... Yeah, I don't know. You don't see a lot of bikes with those anymore. Some brands, and I actually support this on their really small bikes, will use a 27 five-inch wheel, which mm. I think makes sense. Some brands were still, I mean, Santa Cruz is still doing very well with the Bronson and the 5010 that had 27.5s until last year. And most brands are moving to what's called a mullet setup, where your front wheel is a 29er and your rear wheel <laughs> is a 27.5. Business in the front, party in the exactly. back. Exactly. And you, Tessa, have ridden a mullet bike recently. No way. Yes, your e-bike in St. George. Oh, yeah. That was uh, the Specialized yeah. Turbo Levo something or other. Um, uh, I don't I don't follow e-bikes. Um, but uh, we rented one for you down there, and that was a mullet. Um, the theory is that the rollover advantage with a 29, basically a wider wheel fills the gaps between stuff better. Hmm. So if you're riding through a really chunky rock art, it's going to feel better on a 29er. And this is why even in downhill, downhill was the last bastion of small wheels until recently, like most of the riders ride 29ers downhill now. Um, but that is more significant, I guess, on the front wheel. So the idea is that you get the maneuverability and the kind of poppiness of the 27.5 rear wheel, where that's more important, but the rollover of the 29er front. My message mm -hmm. to people who like uh, mullet bikes is this. Cool, do whatever you want. I, yeah. I think it's fine. It makes sense. I probably won't ever buy one. For a, a fun, chuck around, non-competitive bike, that's great. Um, I think in cross country, the you know the efficiency of a 29-inch wheel is gonna win out. I don't think we're yeah. gonna see mullet cross country bikes. Um, so are they better, would a mullet bike be better for like, I don't know, like downhill or something? It's It's more fun. I got is, is, oh, okay. is, it's like that's a, why it was probably on the e-bike yeah it's it, i think the idea is it just makes a bike feel more poppy and maneuverable hmm. but my thought there is like having proper geometry also makes a bike feel poppy and mm -hmm. maneuverable um i think f like we're kind of in a weird spot in cycling right now where everybody is at a race to the bottom to make the longest slackest bike possible and as a result people are like well our bike has to be this long and slack for people to sell and think it's innovative but then it rides like crap so let's make it a mullet hmm. so I don't know. I think mullet bikes are fine. I think truly like if you have a bike with the proper geometry, 29 inch wheels are probably fine. But yeah. people are riding these new 5010s and Bronsons that have the mullet and mm. loving them. So okay. I don't think we're going to see it in cross country, but for a bike that you just want to, you know, ride after work for kicks, like a non-competitive rig. Sure. 
Interesting. 100%. Okay. All right. Uh, next one says, what is your FTP and watts per kilogram? Oh, is that what that means? Interesting. What is my FTP and watts per kilo? Um, I don't. So I will tell you, I will tell you that. I'd have to get out my calculator to figure it out. Um, uh, I don't generally think that you should share your FTP and watts per yeah, kilo. Yeah, because doesn't it depend on like how much you weigh, how... It's, it's how much you weigh and how much power you can produce. Yeah. But I think it I think it kind of obscures things and I think you're going to get the wrong Because it doesn't necessarily... I feel like it doesn't... Nece- like if you have like a really good FTP, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're like an amazing cyclist. Because no. there's like other things that go into it. I don't know. Right. Like, um, I, I don't know, especially where we're mountain bikers and like the FTP, for those of you who aren't familiar, and you should be by now because you know, <laughs> this podcast has talked about it so many times. But if you're listening for the first time, um, your FTP, FTP stands for functional threshold power. And it is the average amount of power that you can produce for one hour. So back in the day, people used to take their power meter and go out on their bike or get on their spin bike or their train or whatever and ride as hard as they could for an hour and then see what their average power was. Then somebody figured that you could you could do a 20-minute test and take 95% of the number that you end up with, mm. and that would be your FTP. When I got into cycling, that's how we did things. The problem is that I am a cross-country mountain biker. Yeah. I never do efforts that are an hour long, uninterrupted. Um, so the problem is that like cross-country mountain bikers and cyclocross racers and just young riders generally who are more punchy can do an insane amount of power for 20 minutes but maybe not for an hour but not for an hour so the idea is like and my math is bad here but like some you know some rider will go chuck down a 350 watt ftp ftp test in a 20 minute test and they're like oh take 95 percent of that when in reality you know if they actually had to do an effort for an hour they're only gonna be able to do 70 maybe 80 percent so yeah we do ramp tests now, which are really uh, complicated. You took a ramp test earlier in the year. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was not fun. Not fun, but it's only <laughs> like eight or nine minutes long. Where basically yeah. the power just keeps getting harder and harder and harder until you can't turn over the pedals anymore. And at that point, they use some math to figure out your FTP. So FTP is not everything. Um, there are riders who have incredible FTPs who are not professionals. There are professionals who have FTPs that aren't that impressive. Um, my FTP right now, I haven't done a test in a few weeks is, is pro like, how about this? I can probably produce th- maybe 330 Watts for 20 minutes uninterrupted. Maybe it's probably a little less than that. Um, I weigh quite a bit. I weigh around 180 pounds. I don't know what that makes my Watts per kilo. You can calculate that if you're interested. I'm not a climber. Um, we always talk in cycling and road cycling about like watt per kilo climbs, like big cottonwood Canyon or little mm-hmm. cottonwood Canyon. That's a watt per kilo climb. It's just math, right? It is a long and steep enough climb that your watts per kilo is going to determine when you get to the top of the hill. I don't think there are many watt per kilo climbs in mountain biking. There's mm. too many other factors, you know, like climbs are rarely uninterrupted. There's technical factors to yeah. consider. I am going to do much better on a climb that is short burst break short burst take right. a break short burst take a break yeah i climbed suncrest yesterday and my time was garbage i'm really bad at like an extended seven percent climb with no breaks but if you put me on armstrong or something i think i'll hold my own because it's it's like a, a punchy effort and then recover for a second a punchy effort and recover for a sec so if like just looking at FTP and trying to decide. It doesn't tell you a lot. It's kind of a simplistic way to look mm-hmm. at things. I'm seeing who asked this question, and he's my 
favorite person in the entire world. And I think he's just curious to know what my number is. <laughs> and and like is Sneaky. a person who has the level of knowledge where I know that's not how he looks at cycling. But if you're sitting out there and that is how you look at cycling and you're like, oh, his FTP is this. It's not the most this, important thing. It's a big part of it. I mean, yeah. it, it can be indicative of how strong a rider is for yeah. their weight. But like the other thing to consider is like, you know, um, look at someone like Andre Greipel, professional road racer, sprinter, right? Won tons of races in his career. I guarantee his watts per kilo was trash. I guarantee that whoever wins the, you know, whatever amateur hill climb in your area has a better watt per kilo mm -hmm. than um, uh, Andre Greipel, but he's won way more stages of the tour than you ever will, right? So, like, it's not everything, especially for mountain biking. It's not right. everything. Yeah. So. Um, I'm confident you you take a rider with a much better watt per kilo than I have and just put us on a random loop in Salt Lake City. I, I think I can hold my own because mm -hmm. I have a much higher punch than most, you know, than like a, like if you take an 80 pound rider, he's going to have an insanely good watt per kilo. But like on anything other than a long extended climb, I think I can hold my own. So yeah. interesting question though. It is interesting. All right. The next one we have says, what is the next big innovation for bikes? Seems like there are only minor improvements right now. Yes. And I, I think that's good. Um, the short answer is I don't know. If I knew I would be patenting it right now. Um, I, I will say if we go back, like the big advancement. So mountain bikes have only been around since like the 80s, right? Right, yeah. Like I guess technically the 70s, but like weren't mass marketed until the late 80s. Even mm -hmm. really. like it was kind of a niche thing, I think. Um, I think the first big change that you had with with mountain biking that people don't appreciate is like tubeless tires. I think Mavic invented tubeless tires back in like the early 2000s. You had people transition from rim brakes to disc brakes. Mm -hmm. That was huge. Um, yeah. I don't know how much pain was involved with that transition if people pushed back on it like they do now. I feel like my dad. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, there's a lot. If, if you got into mountain biking in the 90s and then just kind of stopped there, like, I, you know, I talk to those guys all the time. Mm -hmm. And we have a bike in our garage right now with like 500 millimeter wide bars and rim brakes and 26 inch tires and everything. Um, but the point I'm getting to is I think the first really big one was suspension. Because oh. uh, the first mountain bikes were totally rigid, right? right. And then I, th it was, I think it was Scott. I think Scott invented the first suspension fork. Someone can call. I don't know. I don't know if it's relevant, but... We need a fact... You need like a fact checker for the podcast. We really do. <laughs> um, but I think suspension and then... Uh, gosh, the next like really big one. And it depends on how you like big in terms of how much it changed things or big and how much it improved bikes. Because I think disc brakes think... have been the biggest improvement ever. Probably. Yeah, I don't know. I or suspension, one of the two. And I think not like a big improvement, but something that definitely changed were like e-bikes. That is actually a really good point. Because I don't. I mean, improvement. You know, who's to say? And maybe right. it helps it some people, right? But I mean, that's a huge thing. I don't think you know. In the eighties, they could have thought about like an e-bike that's like electric and. Yeah, and like Everything. say what you will about e-bikes. They've got a lot of people to ride bikes and, and you know, like people are like, oh, you know, e like I used to kind of be like an e-bike hater, but I'm like, I don't know, a lot of people take chairlifts. Well, you, you know? were talking <laughs> about how like an e-bike would be nice for me because like you could go on like a super hard ride and I'd be able to like ride with you because right. an e-bike would put me at like the same kind of power, right. I guess. I, I don't know. Like e-bikes aren't for me personally, but like a lot of people don't like suspension. Like Orbea will sell you an Alma that has no suspension. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you can totally go out and buy a, or like Factor too will sell you like the Lando HT. They'll sell you one 
that has you know a, a rigid fork like so we say i think suspension was the first big improvement in mountain bikes but like a lot of people still ride bikes without suspension that's i would true. say the other one dropper posts i think <gasps> yes. that's the biggest one of the past 10 i years forgot the about dropper, dropper posts post, right? well yeah because we we take it for granted now and like a lot of people don't use a dropper post um you know but like it changes your life honestly it really let's take a moment uh, do you think that anybody should be riding a mountain bike without a dropper post under any circumstances ever no no okay end of discussion like I think a lot of people would hear that and be pissed off, but I think those people, um, there's a word for it, are um, wrong. Those people <laughs> are wrong. They're incorrect. Um, well, it's just, it, they're just so nice. Like, I guess before I had one, I just didn't realize like how much yeah. you need it. Right. You know? But then like you go and ride Zen with like a fixed post. Like I bet, I bet I couldn't do it. Really? You like, have a seat going up your butt the whole time. There's no way. <laughs> I used to be able to, but I have I've changed the rate the way that I I ride for the better. Mm-hmm. Like I think dropper posts allow you to ride a bike the way that you yeah. should. But I, so yeah, sorry. What was your point? I was just gonna say like I feel like you don't realize like the innovations that come through on right. bike stuff because it's like it's not like you know oh this huge brand new bike it's got all this different stuff on it it's like right. small little changes like that right. over time. Right. Like if you compare Dan's old Trek. 2000 or whatever he has in the in the in the garage right now and you compare it to my specialized epic evo right right like it's it's the frame material is gonna be different carbon fiber that's another one i should throw out like carbon fiber mountain bikes i don't think that was a thing until maybe the early 2000s on like a mass market level probably later Hmm. um it's it's made of carbon fiber it's fully suspended it has the front and rear wheels are both suspended the geometry is totally different mountain bikes basically used to be road bikes with a suspension fork you know um even comparing like my the the be-all end-all cross-country bike when i got into the sport was like the 2014 s-works epic that had a 71 degree head tube angle that was a nightmare to route a dropper post on and no one ever you know probably did it had the brain suspension Um, right I'm kind of dancing around definitively answering this question because the the true answer is I don't don't know. know. Of the developments that we know about right now, I I think that the one that we're going to see make the biggest impact and it's already kind of happening is, is, is electronic shifting. Yeah, um, that's I think Axis cool. is a big deal, you know, and it's like it's even getting to the point where like fairly entry level bikes can have wireless shifting. This is one that I think is different from dropper posts because I don't think it meaningfully improves the way the bike rides. Wouldn't it be funny if you had like the wireless or e like breaking <laughs> and you forgot to charge your? That the- <laughs> is the thing. Is it kind of the final frontier? Is like a lot of people are like the only. I don't have any cables on my bike and the only wires that I have on my bike are, are, are like brake cables. That would be really funny if your brakes just like, if you like, and then, and Sram's like, just I take forgot the battery to charge off my the rear yeah. derailleur and put it on your brakes instead. I don't know. I don't think I'd ever do that. Yeah. But like, um, that would be kind of funny though. But like, I, I think I, like a lot of people rolled their eyes when electronic shifting comes out, go ride a bike with electronic shifting. You'll like it. It's, it's smooth. Better. There is not a bad shift. Yeah. It's like every shift is perfect. Yeah. Like Sram's new transmission. I know it's expensive and heavy, but like, an indestructible shifting system that never needs to be adjusted. What Joe's trying to say is he will spend any amount of money just to have the newest bike thing. Right. Well, and it's like, and and so the thing with this question is it depends on how you ask it. Because the most Mm -hmm. meaningful improvements in cycling, I would say suspension and dropper posts. Yep. Then 29 inch wheels. And then maybe I'd throw out like tubeless tires. That's not one that people are talking about enough. Like, can you imagine going back to tube tires? No, that would... They, would they basically just like would you just get a flat tire all the time basically is that yeah. how it works? basically people just got flat tires every ride oh 
Yeah, or they ran their tires at 80 PSI. Right. Right, and like, uh, would that be fun either? No. No, right? Um, you can I mean, to each f- their own, I guess. Right, you know, and there are people they out here their place. who are like, well, I've been riding bikes since 1842, and back then we would just have, you know, 80 PSI. When we're, really okay, here's a quiz it, question you know? for you. Okay. When were bikes invented? When was the bicycle invented? Yes. I think that's another it depends on how you count question. I would say like the, the first 1870s one. would be my guess. I don't think so. Should we fact check this? Do you not know the answer? No, I just wanted <laughs> to know if you knew. <laughs> no, I don't know. The, I don't know because like... People, you know everything about bikes. You don't know when they were invented? I push back on this all the time. I don't know everything about bikes. I know everything about cycling. Like there's, those are different. Mm. The sport of cycling and competitive cycling versus just like bikes as a mode of transportation. I don't. I, you know, I, I, I'm no, you failed the quiz. I'm really disappointed. Am I just being defensive? Cause I didn't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think probably the late 1800s, but yeah, we'll fact like, check it. We'll fact check it, you know? And like, I'll say too, mountain bikes have come a lot farther than road bikes, like a road bike from 2005. Yeah. It's probably pretty similar to how it was like in the eighties, huh? I mean like arrow has changed right. on, on road bikes. Like arrow is a big deal now. There's obviously disc brakes, like carbon wheels are yeah. a lot more common than so used probably to be. Like, more like innovation and changes in mountain bikes oh, than road bikes. Oh, far, a, yeah. a mountain bike from five years ago or 10 years ago is, is like a whole different world. You completely yeah. readjust the way you're at. Road bikes work basically the same. And they've even like, uh, you know, I mean, it's like road bikes aren't even really getting lighter anymore. They're just getting air right. better, right? So my short answer to that question is um, maybe like electronically adjustable suspension, like automatic suspension. I think that will proliferate and I think that'll be a bigger deal than we realize now. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't like the next advancement on the level of the suspension or the dropper post. I don't know, but I'm excited to find out. Yeah. Okay, next question. All right, next one says, what are your thoughts on post-crash loss and enthusiasm for racing and biking? Mm. This is a this is a hard one. Yeah. Because there's like the very short term, like you had a crash. Was it, I think when we were riding in Moab, didn't you have a little crash and then you were nervous after that? Or was it was St. George? St. George this year. You it was a, on that e-bike. No, because you had one oh. uh, when we did the team camp with the, the girls team. Where you're riding. Oh. Do you remember that? You crashed on that corner I there? slid out. You yeah. slid out a little bit, right? I remember the rest of the day you were a little shaky, but you're like over that now, right? Yeah. I've definitely had my fair share of crashes in um, <laughs> my cycling yeah. and, journey. And, and I have too. I've had fairly serious cycling crashes where I've oh, had yeah. fairly serious concussions and stuff. Um, oh. There's a difference between crashing and then being shaky the rest of the ride and maybe the next ride that you do. I think this person is asking about one of those crashes where you have a yeah. rush with death or where you have right. a serious head injury or, or you get hit by it a car. It almost reminds me of, I was obsessed with this movie when I was younger. It was called Soul Surfer and it was oh, about yeah. Bethany Hamilton and yeah. she was like this famous she surfer. She off by a shark, right? Yeah, she, yeah, and she went surfing one day and yeah, her arm was like bitten off by a shark and so she lost her arm and everything and then like she surprised everyone because she got back out there and was surfing again with one arm and just was like amazing at it. So yeah, I think it can be hard initially like getting back out and not being nervous, but I mean, yeah, I don't know. What would you say about it? Well, the interesting part of this question for me is where he says loss of enthusiasm. Um, And I, I don't like taking this podcast to dark places, but I think it is worth remembering that the sport that we have chosen to do is dangerous mm-hmm. and it is, it, it's, it's oh, yeah. more dangerous than most activities. People rarely die bowling. 
people rarely die right. playing football even it really is it's relatively rare playing basketball um but this is dangerous the sport cycling road cycling in particular are, yep. are it, it's a dangerous sport and you can absolutely die doing it people do yeah people die every single week every, every week every week think so? somewhere in the united states somebody dies on a road bike every week i'd be i'd be comfortable wagering that yeah um, i we, mean i've never had like a crash so bad that like i i was close to dying or like you know i've never had one that intense before but i mean you definitely get shaken up and i, I think i've told you on a few rides like i'm never going biking again i hate this yeah, you know this is the worst i'm you know i was i was hit by a car um yeah. in january of 2021 um well your bike you, was hit by a car I, my bike was hit by cars if you uh, very briefly uh, a person who was too old to be driving had some kind of a, a, a problem. They've told me like a stroke or something. And in the course of backing out of someone's driveway, hyper extended his leg on the gas pedal in reverse and the car whipped around and started flying down the street. I was coming around a corner right as this guy passed and got out of the way enough that my body was clear. His car hit my rear wheel and knocked me over. I was fine. Um, I used the insurance payout to buy my factor, which is cool. Um, uh, but if I had been a foot or two behind where I was, I would have been hit directly by a car that was going, by my estimation, I was the only witness to the accident, by my estimation, 35 miles an hour. You know, yeah. like that 100% could have killed me. Um, and there were some moments after that where I was, I kind of had to sit back and be like, yeah, you know, like I, my life could have ended today. Yeah. Um, and that's not only uncomfortable for me, that's uncomfortable for you because yeah. you care about it. It's meant for my parents. Like that's a really hard thing to, to have to like really sit up and think, oh wow, like my life could have ended yeah. is, is what I'm doing. And the thing is, it. the thing is too, I think like if cycling, cycling is what you're passionate about and it's what you love. I don't think you should give it up because of something that happened because I mean, the truth of it is like things are going to happen. Yeah. Stuff happens. Sometimes you crash and I mean, you can't foresee it and you can't prevent it, but I mean, it shouldn't stop you from living your life and doing what you love and care about. I am a believer in statistics. And, and again, I would hazard that somebody gets hit by a car on a road bike and dies once a week on mm -hmm. average in the United States. Um, and that like reckoning with that number is scary. And I will say really quick on the mountain bike, it's much lower. People I mean, rarely die mountain biking. At the same time though, like we drive every single so day. So this is the point I'm getting to. This is the point. Yeah. No, don't segue into my thing I'm sorry. before I was going to, dang it, Tessa. Ah, uh, ruined it. No, but like, um, I think you have to accept that risk exists. Yep. I think you have to take all of the reasonable steps to minimize and mitigate that risk. And then I think you just have to accept that risk. Yeah. And I, like you were saying, statistically, the most dangerous thing that we do every day. Is drive. By far. I mean, in, unless you are participating in, in the use of recreational drugs that you're sourcing from sketchy places, is driving. Driving is incredibly dangerous. A lot of people die in car accidents yeah. every single year. And we don't think about it that much. Even when people get in car accidents, I don't think they think about it that much. So if you're listening to this and you had the crash where you broke your back yeah where you had a severe concussion um i think it is absolutely fair to take the time yeah, take that you a break. need away to get up to be to be okay with it but then just to remember that like statistically most people don't die in cyclic accidents um some do 
but most people don't. Um, if you are careful, if you if you practice good risk assessment, if you you know take time to work on your skills and you have good judgment, you will crash and it will hurt and it will be uncomfortable and maybe you'll break your arm once every ten years or have an injury on that level, um, but it'll be okay. I I don't yeah. think that this sport is so insanely dangerous that like you should stop doing it. Um, I have known writers who are who have poor judgment and yeah. who have bad skills and who try to impress people and do stupid things. And I don't think they should ride bikes. Right. I know people who like to ride bikes without helmets. I think that's the dumbest thing ever. It's all um, about like taking precautions yeah. and like, like you said, like honing your skills, making sure that you're being safe by wearing a helmet. I mean, you do things to like, you know, reduce your risk of that kind of thing. But yeah, like take a break if you need it. And you know, if, if you sit back and you take stock and you say that crash was really scary the potential consequences that either happened or i narrowly avoided in that crash are scary i don't want to do this anymore i think that's okay i yeah. think I, I i i don't agree with that decision i think even when you have a really really horrifying bad crash i think you can still come back and do this and i would encourage you to but if if you're sitting there and it's and you make a conscious decision that this isn't worth it anymore that that's your you, choice you're not comfortable with that risk not just your choice. I'm okay with that. I can yeah. support you in that. Um, but again, I think if you, and, and again, talking about the mountain bike here in particular, absolutely come back. If you decide that you're done with road riding, I can't fault you for that. Yeah. I mean, even me, like I like road ri riding with you, but I mean, I don't like going on busy streets or, you know, in traffic just because it's, it is scary and there is a lot of risk involved in well, that. Well, it's not even that. The, the only time I was hit by a car was in an empty neighborhood. That's on true. On a residential street. I had You're not another, making me feel any better. Well, no, I had another run-in on in the cove um, oh, yeah. a few years ago where a person turned left and I, I just about died and they weren't looking and I followed them home to try to get them to talk to me. Just be like, hey, you almost killed me. Can we talk about it really quick? Like, I don't want to call the police or anything, right. but like, I think you should consider the way that you're driving need and to the have fact like, that you could have ended someone's life today you know we need to have a defensive <laughs> cycling course i think defensive driving you know if you haven't started driving yet your mom will tell you you know when she when she takes you to yep. that church parking lot the first time assume my, everyone's an idiot yeah right? my mom always says like like this is with driving but i guess you can apply it to road cycling Same thing, yeah. just act like everyone is about to hit you with their car or they're going to turn yes. into you or whatever like yep. act like they are not paying attention because yep. a lot of the time they're not i mean no. the distractions today are insane like your yeah. phone you're on spotify you're texting your whatever so i think just being precautious and knowing yeah there is a risk but it's worth it yeah and, and like as a final note really quick like i really be objective when you think about your risk assessment like i said the closest run-ins and the actual run-in I've, I've ever actually had with cars were on residential roads so be and a lot of your parents those, are like fine you can ride on the roads but stay in the neighborhood i think the neighborhood's the most dangerous place huh. like i think um uh, you know like like riding along wasatch boulevard or emigration mm -hmm. They're busy. They're, you'll see plenty of cars, but there's a big wide bike lane. People expect you to be there. I think oh, it's that's the true. biggest thing is a lot of on roads, like people are like, oh, I expect to see cyclists. Like I, I personally don't ride Mill Creek Canyon all that much anymore because it draws in a lot of tourists who don't expect to see cyclists and the right. road is really narrow up above the gate. Um, I like I, this used to drive. Do you remember when I used to night ride all the time? Yeah, I was, I was honestly, school. I was like, that is so dangerous. But then he was like, well, not many people are out There's at very night. Few so cars. I have lights. I'm way more visible than I would be in terms of my contrast. Um, so yeah, I, I think to answer your question, like 
practice good uh, risk assessment and, yeah. and, and mitigate and minimize your risk. And it's and, okay to take a break. And it's okay to take a break to decide that, that you're ready to come back would be my answer to that. Do we have one more? Yes, one okay, more. last one. That was well said, Joe. Nicely done. Thank you. Okay, last one on a lighter note. On a light, yeah, lighter-ish, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Should I buy a specialized Epic Evo or a new Scott Spark? And oh. you have had both of these bikes, haven't you? I haven't had the new Spark. Oh, Actually, okay. my Spark is two. My Spark is two generations old at this point, which is crazy to me. Wow! I wish I had a whole episode on this. I currently ride a specialized Epic Evo. Um, you love it too. Don't I love you? it. Really quick, out of the gates, both of these are good bikes. If you ride uh, one of these or either, I'm going to say really quick. My answer is the specialized. If you ride the Scott, that's great. The Scott is an excellent bike, and there are a lot of things I really love about it. Don't feel bad for riding one. It is in my top my top echelon of bikes that I really like. There are one or two things about it that kind of bug me that made me decide to go with a different bike. Uh, really quickly, I'll just run over. I'm not a fan of the cable management system. There are some hmm. parts on it that feel kind of plasticky. Um, I don't love Do the Do those fact just get in the way or no, why does it matter the if they opposite. feel plasticky? Uh, I don't know. I just, it, like there are a few things on it where I was touching. I'm like, this doesn't feel like really durable quality. Like oh. there's like a cover on the stem that covered up some of the, the cables I didn't love. I will also say the internal shock is interesting. Hmm. I don't see the need for it. I think it would be a bit of a pain to deal with. Um, yeah, finally, and really quick, I'd love to get some actual numbers on this. Like, I, well, okay. <laughs> to transition over to the Epic, the Epic is the lightest cross-country bike that you can actually buy. I don't think anybody's making a frame that's lighter. That was the biggest thing for me. Hmm. Um, uh, like, it's insanely light. The geometry is really progressive. With a 100 mil fork, it feels exactly how I want it to. I think the only thing I'd fault, the I'd, I'd fault the Epic for, first, for not having remote lockout, which is oh, insanely yeah, that's stupid, because no I had to go buy that's a separate no shock. That's the big problem. I think it is too slack. I would rather run a 120 that would make it slacker than I want. That's my issue with the Epic. But the Epic is insanely fast. It's insanely light. The frame is so light that like you can get one with SLX and it's lighter than a lot of bikes with like X01. Wow. You know? Yeah. That's so, like, saying something. It's re no, it really is, right? Like um, I, I, I really like my Epic. Again, I, I wish they'd send it with a remote lockout. But like with the Scott, I like the geometry of the Scott. Um, you know, it's obviously a really fast, I mean, it's, it's the, one of the winningest cross country bikes ever. Right. But when I, when I actually got down to it, I was looking at the value for what I was getting, the quality of the, of the frame, the, the weight. Um, he really does his research. I really do. Um, I think I like the geometry of the Scott better. Hmm. I, it's, it's not quite as slack as the Epic, I believe. And, um, and it's pretty. And it's pretty. I also, I do think the Epic's way better looking. I think the Scott it, it looks cool and fast. I don't think it's pretty. I think the Epic is pretty. Um, they're both great Controversial bikes. Controversial opinions here. I don't know. They're they're both great bikes. I would happily ride a Scott if I was sponsored. Um, it's not currently in my top four or five that I would wow. buy. Uh, the bike that actually came closest was the Orbea Ois was going to be my bike until I went with the... I got a really good deal on my Epic. Um, but yeah, like again, I have, I have no problems with the Scott. Um... I, I think the Epic is a better bike overall. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, wow, this went longer than I thought it would. Uh, thanks, everyone, for sending in those questions. If people like this format, I can throw in more Q&As. I could even do an additional Q&A show on top of uh, the normal podcast. Um, but, Tessa, 
thank you for being here. Thanks for talking about. I mean, we were going to talk about bikes anyway, but we just you stuck should a mic say in front of you. yes next week. No, the week after next week. Okay, so next week right. I will still do the show. Yeah. Uh, the week after that we're will be a couple married. days after my wedding. Um, it's this really cool girl. You'll like her. <laughs> um, uh, it'll be a couple days after, and then I'll be on my honeymoon after that. There will be a couple weeks where I will not be on the show. I don't know how Dan will cope. I don't know if Dan even knows how to use this computer program that we use well enough to produce a show, but we will see. Um, I'm going to try to convince him to get another guest on here. Um, but yeah, next week will be uh, will be the my last, last show for a couple weeks. I'll be back. Um, but yeah, then we, he gets a ride partner for life. I, I know. I'm so excited. Are you excited to be my ride partner for life? Oh, you know it. Okay. I, I <laughs> Yeah, I guess I wasn't allowed to do bike stuff in my vows. Maybe that could be like a side show that That's we do. That's funny because like I bike put vows. bike stuff in my vows. Do you? Can I do bike stuff in my vows? Yeah. Oh. I was just, I think I was just kidding when I said that. Oh. We'll take this I definitely offline. put bike stuff in mine really? for you. Yeah. Gosh, you're so freaking cool. This I know is, I am. That's why I like you. Anyway, <laughs> thanks thanks to everyone as always. Thanks to the Norden Group for their support. Thanks to everybody who's riding and kicking butt in Maybird jerseys. Thanks to all the coaches. Be safe this week, and I will uh, look forward to talking to you uh, on Sunday, uh, this uh, a week from today, in my last show as a bachelor. <laughs> okay, thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>